Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. So, you had a birthday. Take today? Today. Happy birthday. Oh, there's even a cake. <laughs> <laughs> we're still going. There's even a cake for you. There, yeah. Happy thank birthday. You. Thank you, John. And this week's coffee is oh, brought yeah. to you by who's this week? Actually brought Java to you Pura. By. And we yeah. have Shipping Channel and Java Pura, locally roasted in Texas. Excellent. Look, dude, any brother or sister who wants to send us some coffee, I can tell you. But I can tell you. Those are both excellent. Oh yeah, that's nice. Good. It pairs. It's going to pair well with that cake. So, um, how how old are you now? I'm a 42, John. 42. I am. Yeah. No, I I turned 53 today. 53. I, I that feels old to me. I don't feel old, but that's old. Well, 53 is actually like the new 33, except oh, okay. during COVID 19. <laughs> During COVID nineteen, it's like seventy four. You know they used to. You know, I'm in a vulnerable population. No, you know, for a while it was like everybody said, "Oh, seventies oh. the new fifty, and eighties yeah. the new sixty. It's now like, now the new- <laughs> fifty is the new seventy. The new during COVID, it's like you 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 skew up instead of down. I just feel unhealthy. COVID just I feel just makes unhealthy. you feel like yeah. Like I've gained. Yeah, these are interesting days, and I think that. Uh, a vast majority of time, I don't know. I think the vast majority of time has to be spent not on looking backwards, but where do we go from here? Absolutely. What do things look like? I think hmm. part of the reason the reason that the the racial uh, components are so in focus is because we're in a pandemic as well. Yeah, I mean, it, we're in a, we're in a place in a space where everything we see everything differently. So race is we see it differently, and that's uncomfortable for people. I, I mean, I I can't tell you how many people they just want to go back to the way things were. We're not going to go back to the way things were. Never. It's not going to happen anytime soon. I'm real big into managing expectations, as Barry Schwartz says. The secret to happiness is low expectations, and this roller coaster ride of pandemic is not going to level out as much as you want to fight it, as much as you want to post all this data about how masks are a conspiracy, as much as you want to post about how this is some false thing to control people and turn everyone into Democrats. The reality is it's here and it's not going away anytime soon until we get a vaccine. That's going to be a while. So we're going to have to figure out how to to deal with this. And it's interesting to me that a lot of the reaction and battle is more rooted in our unwillingness to change yes than it is to really address the mm. real issues of covid or mm. economic insecurity yeah. or racial division i don't know it's a compensatory mechanism as shine says we're always or maybe it's singing you know we're always fighting hard to protect ourselves against threat and embarrassment those are the yeah. two things we're doing everything in our power to protect ourselves against threat and embarrassment. That's good. That's the way we're wired. It seems like what runs underneath all that is just this cultural fear, you know, the fear of the threat or the fear of being embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And I keep, I keep coming back to what you and I constantly are talking about in the Gospels, this, this Gospel that roots us in love. 
you know, that, that, um, that roots us in our communal life together and the goodness of acting out towards others with real deep compassion and care. And I think that's, that's what makes us human. It's the only way forward. You know, I think this is really helping me understand what it means to be a Christian, not just in, in what I believe in my head, but the way I act in the world. And it's a real summonsing to do that in practical ways. I, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's this whole thing about, we're talking about sitting at the feet of the rabbi. Right. You know, there's the, the, the way rabbinical teaching happens is learning, growing, assimilating. And I think a lot of us in our Christian discipleship, we got the learning and kind of some of the growing. Mm. But now we're being tested to see how much of this life of the rabbi we are assimilating yeah. into our, not just our practice, but our words and our worldview. Yes. Yeah. So, well, Mark, I'm John Stevens. It's nice to meet you by Zoom. Nice to meet you as well. Nice to yeah, meet you too. Glad, glad you're here. Thanks for, uh, for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me. Well, Matt, you want to introduce yeah. Mark and then Mark, I think it'd be great first to just tell us a little bit about what you're doing and organization you're involved in so yeah yeah, okay. yeah I, I met mark actually recently through a friend and a colleague uh, rachel snyder who's a uh, project curate and also um, a postdoc fellow at uh, rice university has been kind of working on the i think she did her phd in evangelical kind of churches in south africa and kind of um, both kind of uh, white churches that were kind of leading the charge and also white churches that proved to be barrier to social change there and kind of was was looking at different dynamics of those and and she told me recently oh i've got a friend that you've got to meet um i think that there'd be a lot that y'all have um um to talk about and so um meeting you and and also then being uh i've as i've uh, as i've emailed you i've kind of stalked you on your podcast um <laughs> and uh which has been really great and which i'd love to one i'd love to kind of promote here um and then also would love to kind of riff off of your last podcast around um some of the dynamics that you and um and your co-hosts were, were talking about but um um but I know that you, you're living in Louisiana from North Carolina. Um, you're a theologian and a, um, and a, and a pastor uh, or have at least pastored in your, uh, in your history. Um, can you kind of tell us about who you are and uh, what you're involved in right now? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in North Carolina, um, very rural area, eastern part of the state, um, fundamentalist Baptist background. Mm -hmm. um, that was all I knew. Uh, you know, there wasn't much of a mainline presence uh, out in that part of the, the world and um, grew up and in my 20s started to have my eyes open to some things, both theologically and socially. Um, the area where I grew up prior to my birth, at least throughout the 60s and 70s, had been a, a hotbed of clan activity huh. um, and that uh, that that history lingered, you know, through the 80s, 90s, and to the, today. And anyway, it's we're, it's sort of at the northern end of the what's called the Black Belt or the Cotton Belt. Um, so in terms of racial demographics, it was always pretty evenly mixed, black and white. I mean, sometimes like the Mississippi Delta region where I live now could be majority African-American. 
um, and minority white throughout those regions. And it, it traces back to the history of, of slavery and uh, plantation style, you know, farming and things like that. And anyway, the, those communities you can still find, and that, that's true with the Delta too. Um, but anyways, over time, I, uh, you know, felt called into ministry at an early age and pursued mm-hmm. that call and went to seminary and then did more work um, in theology and a PhD program at Garrett Evangelical United Methodist Seminary. So that's my United Methodist um, <laughs> background there. And uh, a lot of, so I started that work back in 2009 and there was a small group of people, Rachel included, as, as you mentioned, who were starting to begin to talk about what it means to look at theology and the theology that we write and that we preach and that develops in our churches to what does it mean to take the our white identity seriously and to interrogate that and to really look at the how whiteness shapes the way we have framed theology in the United States and the way we practice it and things like that, which was a, a charge that had been given to white theologians for the last 30 or 40 years, going back to James Cone and the beginning of the black liberation theology movement and, um, not many white theologians either had the language to do it or were not taking it seriously. And so that it, now it's, it's grown a lot over the last 10 years where theologians are in churches and congregations where are, we're trying to look at whiteness. That language has come to the forefront in the last five, six, seven years um, that we were trying to do that theologically as well. And so that shaped the my, my dissertation and my doctoral work was looking at that and um, Ended up landing here in Louisiana um, with a nonprofit, a faith-based nonprofit ministry called Together for Hope, which um, I'll give you a little bit of the background there. It um, tries to be a resource. We've got communities all over the United States, not communities. We have individuals and ministry presences in communities across the United States where areas of poverty, where poverty is very high. and that the the together for on a broader scale has identified places of persistent poverty, meaning where poverty has been at a certain level for more than three or four decades in a row. Wow. The majority of citizens live in poverty or at or below the poverty line. Um, and so the place where I am in Lake Providence, Lake Providence, Louisiana, um, poverty levels here are very high and have been for 30 or 40 years. And there's a whole history of why that's the case, but, so I've been, you know, theologian slash organizer slash ministry presence um, in a town that's 80% African-American, 20% white. Um, segregation levels are still reminiscent of, of Jim Crow or the 1940s, 1950s. The school systems are still 100%, not by law, but by practice, 100% segregated. Um, churches, of course, are um, so it's been an interesting experience, but it's been good work and it's mm-hmm. been good to be here. That's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> I, I wonder if today, I mean, one, I, uh, again, I want to mention your po- your podcast, uh, um, and the name of it is Southern White Theologians. Progressive Southern Theologians. Progressive Southern Theologians. That's right. I yeah. knew there was. A, I knew I was white. <laughs> 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 With your two du- two white dudes, <laughs> we are, we are, we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. Par- part of what I've really loved about listening to you and and just you know um, getting to know you through that work and then through some of the um, collaborative work that we'll be doing is um, 
as a way I hear you talk about um, race and racism, and then also this construct of whiteness seems to be done with um, with a real gentleness and a and a resoluteness. Not you're not kind of um, not saying that we don't have work to do, but you also seem to uh, be taking in the long arc of the work that um, that needs to be done, has been done, and that we're called to do. Um, and I wonder if you could help us understand the construct of um, maybe just in the beginning kind of whiteness, because when when folks hear that, particularly in white churches, there's kind of this pullback that says, wait, I'm I, I'm white. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a, you know, there's all these kind of defenses that go up. And can you help us understand a little uh, of the nuances between um, uh, what whiteness is and whiteness isn't? And then maybe the call of discipleship in the midst of that? Yeah. Um, in some ways, in some ways, and I'll qualify this, whiteness is just, it's benign in a way. Um, and there's a major caveat coming with that. In terms, whiteness just, to me, signifies the culture in which white people live, the norms, the habits, the customs, the behaviors, the, the practices, the, the way we talk. The Now, that, it, that gets played out differently across various regions um, of the geographical regions, across class backgrounds, of course, um, across religious backgrounds. It doesn't, whiteness doesn't always look the same. It's not one thing. Um, just like being black or being Hispanic is not a monolithic thing either. You know, there are various ways to embody that and, and to live into black identity or white identity or Hispanic identity. So in the in a sense, um, the term whiteness, understanding it does raise bells because, because for a lot of our history, whiteness has just been normal. It's just the way things are. It's the way we do things. And the, and the blackness or brownness has been the other you know that's been the other way of doing things that we notice that's outside of the, the pale of what's normal um, so whiteness is one attempt just to name the fact that we are enculturated beings that we we have something that um, is nameable that uh, that describes our again our customs are anything if you would think of the word culture anything that you would apply to the word culture that's sort of the way i think of whiteness um, the less benign part of that, of course, is how those norms, the way we assume that to be normal, then sort of um, intentionally sometimes and sometimes unintentionally le leads itself to dehumanizing people who are not white. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that, you know, creating this category of the racial other. Um, and when there's political and social power attached to that and economic power and whatnot, um, it then creates a lot of the issues that we see around racial injustice. Um, and so whiteness is also a way to try to name these, you know, these cultural, sociopolitical things that are at work here. Um, so it's both analytical, it's both descriptive. It, it's some, you know, I think of, um, well, I'll save that. I'll save that for later. But that's, that's what I start with when I think about whiteness. Yeah. Okay. And then what's the call of the church amid like the 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 social kind of um, place that we find ourselves both with you know kind of within the COVID pandemic and then now with the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, um, 
and others, um, and these calls to uh, reformation on on multiple levels, whether that's education or the wage earn gap, um, maybe the way that communities police. Um, what's the call of the church amid all of this? Do you see what's the work of the church amid all this? You know, one word that always comes up to me or comes to me when I think about this as a starting point is just simply empathy. And I mean that in a technical way for people who may find themselves resistant to some of the language or to some of the slogans or to some of what they see happening. Many white people are not resistant to that and have supported the movements and concern about COVID or protests in the streets. There have been lots of white people involved in trying to be allies in that respect. But for those who may be a little more squeamish around some of those things, um, empathy is a great place to start and it's just can you can we stop for a second and imagine what another person might actually be experiencing and feeling in that what they are experiencing may not be what we experience as white people um that's where the 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 name may not be perfect but the category or the idea of whiteness is meant to help us think okay like i have this sort of enculturated way of being but that's true for others and it might look it might look and feel and be different for someone who's not white than it is for us. So starting with empathy is um, is a practice to cultivate. And I don't think that's unrelated to our spirituality and, you know, calls that we see from, you know, the scriptures of, of ways of being in the world. Um, listening also, I don't you know, listening is extremely important that um, if you find to the extent that we find ourselves hesitant to. I don't know, to buy into something that we see or or hear from people of color or folks who are leading some of these movements um, or who are challenging some of the comfortable ways that we exist, um, rather than shutting down and just turning away, just at least trying to listen. That's not an easy task necessarily, but it's a place to start. And again, just to maybe imagine that the realities being described by others are actually true Mm. (laughs) and those realities are true and they may seem foreign to some white people who live in certain parts of the country or who have not been present in communities of color very often or um, don't have deep relationships with people of color, um, significant relationships there that again, listening, developing empathy, imagining that, you know, trusting our, 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 our neighbors and our colleagues who are black and from different racial backgrounds, that their experience may be different from ours. Those are some beginning points. There are many other things that could, you know, that the church is being called to do as well, but those are a couple of starting points. Hmm. What do you think? One of the things, Mark, um, I grew up in the deep South as well, South Georgia, very segregated neighborhoods and life and mentality one of the things and so I, th- I think i'm on my own journey just recognizing a lot of my own ignorance about privilege and uh, and all these things that that there are a lot of assumptions like you said there's there's whiteness is that that was just normal for me i mean life has just been normal and then there's been the other and i've lived with the other went to school with the other played ball with the other you know whatever, whatever they might be and now in houston living among the other I think there, uh, one of the things you said about empathy and listening, I think there are things we can control and things we can't control. And one of the things we can control in this process that I'm learning is I can, I can control my ability to be open. And I'm experiencing a lot of really, I, I say this carefully, really good Christian people that I've known all my life. 
I know they love Jesus, and I know that they are Christians. But this is an issue that they really don't know how to find themselves. They don't know how to articulate. They don't know how to process. They're confronted with a lot of, there's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of personalization around race. Um, I've noticed that, I said it last week, ever since we talked with Christian Washington, who's one of our pastors on staff, is that whenever we talk about race, you know, white folk have a tendency to personalize everything. Well, I didn't do that. You know, I, I wasn't my, I didn't do that. I'm fine with everything being equal. Uh, but there's also, I'm even sensing from people that said, can y'all just go a week and not talk about racism? Can we just not talk about this anymore? <laughs> okay, just, we get it. They, I mean, that's what, you know, right, we weeks. get it, all right? <laughs> we get it. We hear it, and it's like, we want to go back. I, I don't know that, um, it, well, how, do you, how do you address that? How do you speak to that? How do you, something to me about where we are now, and I think, you could point to the one issue of George Floyd. I think it's a combination yeah. of years and years of, of leading to this point where this is an inflection point, a pivot point in our culture, in our society. When you see NASCAR, uh, who derives their profits off of all of these groups, and, and they say no more Confederate battle flag, when they you know, do what they do and walk alongside of each other, you know we're in a different place. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, We're in a different yeah, yeah. place. So I guess I'm just I'm, I'm, ra- I'm not ranting. I'm just sort of um, thinking, processing how I would want to be able to communicate to people around this. Def- yeah. And there's also this deflection. There's huge deflection. It's like, I know that's bad, but I can't believe, you know, it, they, they point to the looting or the burning of buildings. It's all of deflection, and it's out of our defensiveness and all of these things. How do we begin to have conversations and really invite people in a non-threatening way to really have serious conversations about real issues that sometimes we're not even aware of? I mean, it's just, it's there, we kind of know it, but we're being confronted, some people are being confronted with this for the very first time in real ways. Yeah, It's threatening for them. A couple of things um, I mentioned on this uh, one of the episodes of the podcast recently that um, social media puts I, a lot of the people that I follow on social media are either very fervent in their support for the protests right now or are responding in very deflective and you know <laughs> ways. I've got family members and others who I've seen you know take offense to a lot of what's um, white family members a lot of what's happening now. Um, it. I'm not out here to, to criticize social media, but it definitely intensifies it. And it, mm. we're, you know, we're scrolling through our phones lots and lots and lots and lots of times throughout the day. So it is, I think it is present and in front of us a lot more. That's just a reality to name. But I've noticed that, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, I know what it was. <laughs> when I see on social media, when I see calls, you know, that are very, I frame them as sort of like prophetic speech, you know, like prophetic speech does not um, does not delve in in nuance. It does not care for pastoral sensitivity. It is you are wrong. This needs to change. Go fix it. This is broken. Like do it. If you don't, you're a bad person. Like that's, that's sort of at the heart of the prophetic tradition, which is one part of what it means to be a Christian and to follow in the way of Jesus and whatnot. And I see that. I found it helpful if, I, if when I'm talking with folks, if I say, you know, a lot of what you see on social media or what's happening in the street, if you see that as a form of prophetic speech, 
that is valuable and is sort of, you know, in a, in a vanguard type of movement that's sort of pointing in the way that we would want society to go. Um, think of it like that. And then also remember, and here's the, the nuance, but also remember that human beings don't change as quickly as what that type of direct, bold, prophetic speech would make it seem like was possible. Yeah. And so while it's, it's, I think it's necessary as a form of prophetic speech, it is not the, the thing that's going to get people uh, you know, changing our, 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 our psychologies about race, which are deeply, deeply built into the structures of who we are and our very being, the way we move through space, like those are not easy things to change and they're not things that change overnight. It's sort of like, um, I think Christianity already has the language to sort of deal with this. You know, there are some Christian traditions like the one I was born into that's more evangelical or revival and uh, revivalistic in nature where, you know, a conversion experience is something that can happen overnight, right? Like yeah, it can yeah. be very yeah. sudden and direct. And sure, there might be some people out there who who see something that happens or they might read an article or read a book or, or you know, watch what happened to George Floyd. And, and it, maybe a light comes on and it's just a dramatic transformation for them. And they're now woke in terms of their racial consciousness or something like that. <laughs> We also know in Christianity that there are a lot of people that that's not the process they go by, you know, in terms of the development of their spirituality. And I think the same thing is true. The tricky part is not, you know, if you're on that bold prophetic front, you're not trying to give a pass to people because people are really truly suffering from systems of racial injustice. But as I said in the podcast, the psychology of race is is difficult it, and it's going to take it takes a long time for people um, to walk that journey. And it is a journey. I mean, that, that metaphor and that language is there as well. I, I made the joke on the, um, to my co-host the other day, I said, I know a lot of people on social media that are colleagues of mine and friends of mine who are very woke in sense of what's their, their analysis of what's happening in the world. But I also know that it took them having a bachelor's degree, a master's degree and a doctoral degree to get to that level of awareness. Uh, it took lots, it, it, not always all three of those degrees, but it took a lot of professors. It took a lot of relationships, a lot of mentoring, a lot of privilege, a lot of access to the histories that people otherwise don't know that we're not taught in K-12 history courses like the Tulsa race massacre, right? Like a lot of people, including myself, didn't know much about that until I was in a master's or a PhD to, you know, degree program. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to- Or until we watch the watch the Watchman. The Watchman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. So, yeah. I mean, when I I watched this a series on uh, what Netflix yeah. or something, and or one of those things, and it opens HBO. with that scene. Yeah. HBO. And I had yeah. to Google that up because I was a history major, and I don't know that I ever was aware. Yeah. Of exactly Black Wall Street in Tulsa, I had no idea. Hmm. Yeah. So you know, to understand for white folks that it's not going to happen overnight. Um, there might not even really be a final destination point. Again, that's why I led earlier with the comments about listening and empathy being so important mm. um, because it is a, it's, it's a long process. I think people who do the work of trying to work with white congregations and, and white community members, you know, to grow in their awareness of some of these things and these realities, there also needs to be a, I think there's a benefit to a pastoral touch or a gentle touch when it comes to that, because, like any uh, like any other change in, in in views of society or worldview or theology or whatnot, it's often a long and slow process. Um, with that being said, um, I think while white people do that kind of work, which is important and necessary, that we also adopt a a sense of well, at least 
at least let us not get in the way, you know, of other people who, who may be farther along in that journey who, who are realities and are working for certain types of social change um, that we're not trying to slow down that process. Um, but also, you know, guilt and shame just doesn't get us very far at the end yeah. of the day. Um, and it's easy to fall into that trap and to personalize everything or to, um, you know, or, and then to want to deflect and things like that. And that's, I don't know that that's productive. Um, it's not very productive at the end of the day. Um, my last thing I'll say too, in this respect is that we, when we're talking, when we're talking about this, we always have to keep coming back to the idea that racism can be a personal disposition or a set of views or ideas that we have, but really one of the major concerns is with systems and how it how it works systemically mm -hmm. in our culture. And that's another type of education, another thing to begin to understand. And there's a history to that, to learn and all of these things. And so it's not always, it's not always about the individual. I think a lot of our language and conversations tends to always go back to what are we doing as individuals about this or what joke did I tell or not tell, or did I call out my cousin at a Thanksgiving dinner? And I'm interested in those things because those things matter. They're, they're pieces of the fabric, but I'm just as interested in what, what we're doing at social levels, both municipal, state, federal levels, like what kinds of things are we doing to try to make life um, a bit more, more just and more fair for people of color. That I, I, both of those things have to be, and I think that can alleviate some of the individualized guilt that we might feel to say, well, okay, I'm going to be on my journey and I'm going to be doing what I can do personally. And then also what's happening at systemic levels that are affecting larger swaths of people besides just me and my next door, door, next door neighbor or something like that. Um, and I think maybe we can get a little more done if we switch what I really like that re resonates with me, and you said, okay, we might not be there. People I know might not be there prophetically ready to do that, but let's just not get in the way. <laughs> and I think part of our defensive mechanisms, especially with social media, where we yeah. can say whatever we think anytime we want, we say things that we think are, what you know, again, out of defensiveness or whatever, and they're not helpful. They get in the way. Um, I, I would I would think that's a really good lesson for us to say if we're open to being on that journey, can we just not get in the way? And when you talk about, I know for some folks who are on the prophetic end of the spectrum, gradualism is an enemy. You know, the whole idea, really whether it, whether it, it be in the LGBTQ inclusivity or racial, it's just like you're either all there, all then, or you're an enemy. And so... As we think about gradualism, I, I wonder how we find ourselves in that. I think you talk about there's that instantaneous uh, salvation, transformation moment like Paul on the Damascus Road. But then I think there's a lot of stories in the scripture. I think like Nicodemus, who is an ally, and yet he's always right there on the periphery, on the edge, um, wanting to learn, kind of in the way, not in the way, <laughs> sort of defending, but not really walking alongside of him. And at the end, he's like, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like Nicodemus to me is that one really interesting character in, in John's gospel that John never really ties up with a bow yeah. in a real clean and clear way. He He's this real tentative kind of in and out character that I, I've found in my own life I wrestle with and find myself as Nicodemus. And it seems like a lot of us may be in that space uh, as we go to meet Jesus by night 
to try to figure out what's going on. We defend him in front of other people. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I don't know, but um, I really like the yeah. idea of the image of, okay, you may not be here or there, but let's not get in the way of the work that other people will be doing. Yeah. I use the um, analogy also of therapy on the last podcast program. I yeah. said, no one, you know, if you go to a yeah. therapist and the first thing they say to you is that you're an awful human being and you need to go fix yourself. <laughs> you're in a bad, that's a bad therapist, right? Like <laughs> Some people love those yeah, kinds yeah. of therapists. I, I, yeah. <laughs> what? what do you mean? That's not normal? <laughs> Some people would love that. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, we could, we could play off that analogy for a while too, but just, you know, let's say somebody does have an actually bad habit. That's, that's hurtful and harmful to another human being. It doesn't mean that what they're, how they're treating somebody is okay. And that they should just say, Oh, well, I'm gradually working on it and I'll get there eventually. Um, the psychology of it is, is that it does take time. And yet at the same time, we have to find a way to honor the, the hurt and the pain and the inequities that are very real and are very present yeah. and are um, very uh, taking its toll on, on our neighbors as yeah. well. And yeah. we have to hold both of those things together. I love that analogy because it, um, it, it kind of understands and presupposes that there are behaviors that are really tied deeply into the way that we have constructed our own lives and our own identities and the culture that we live in and that we can't even see because they're really normal. You know, and that's where I find both kind of the light of the gospel shining of this other kingdom, you know, that, that gets talked about like, oh, there's another way of living that I'm being called to. And there is um, uh, there's a gentleness that God has always um um, enacted in my own life in those kinds of changes. It's been resolute, it's been prophetic, but there's also been a deep gentleness that says, uh, come on, you can take a step. You know, I, you, you want to be a little more free? You can do this. Um, and so that's the gas oil mix, I think, within kind of pastoral ministry is how do we, how do we both say the hard word that needs to be said, but also um, um, the gentle process that is resolute that we call people, even ourselves are called onto. Uh, I think, and I hear you talk about that in a way that I haven't heard um, uh, in that combination before, and I find it to be super helpful. Uh, yeah, super helpful. Another nuance there, too, is that, and this is a popular, something that it's very often seen on social media and in these kinds of conversations, is that the white community, that we don't ask the black community or other, you know, other racial communities, other people of color to do that work for us. We don't ask them to be our therapists, to, right. use, that, <laughs> to use that language again, um, because that's not fair. And um we can, you know, that, 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 that learning process, um, sur surely there may be some folks out there who are willing to walk alongside their white sisters and brothers, um, in that, along that journey, but that's not a, you know, to put that expectation on communities of color to do the education work for us. Um, that's where white leaders need to step up and yeah. help yeah. do that because it can feel very, um, I would imagine that it could feel very, um, uncomfortable and, and frustrating to have to be in that slow, gradual process um, and and would much rather have, you, you know show up where you can, be an ally when you can to the extent that you can, uh, but don't don't ask us to do that internal work for you. Um, yeah, I found that to be really important. So Mark, to the to sort of the average layperson who would be listening and they say, I've, ha I've had I've had some conversations with people that have, have said to me who are very 
they can be defensive. They can struggle with this. Like, all right, you tell, tell me what can I do? What, what, what can I do? What's my part then? And sometimes I get that question even from people that are a little antagonistic to the whole conversation. So it's almost like a test. It's like, you tell me what I can do. Again, it over-personalizes it. But still, I think it is interesting for us to start with just a lot of folks that haven't either paid attention or it's been normal or they've just been, and now they're starting to at least be open. What are some steps or some just basic starting points, places, things to do that you would give to, uh, to white folk to say, here's how you can be open in this journey? When you, when you were given the example of the person asking that question, it reminded me of the, the, the lawyer who approached Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? Um, <laughs> that, didn't work, that, didn't, that story didn't work out real well for that guy. <laughs> and, and Jesus basically says, well, you already know what to do, don't you? you know, um, are you really asking me or are you trying to bait me here? You know, I think that that's the biggest one. Um, gosh, you know, I think of... Um, that's a big question. Um, I think one of the issues that has been raised and has been raised very well are inequities in our criminal justice system. Um, I think both educating ourselves in in terms of, I'm I'm thinking of places where we see racial injustice really play out where it's been inscribed into our system today. That doesn't look like maybe ways that it did in, in, in decades past. Um, there's been a lot of awareness being raised around that. The new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander was a book that was eye-opening to me that I just did not know. Um, all of the racial inequities that were built into the criminal justice system in terms of how things were prosecuted, in terms of the war on drugs, et, et cetera. Um, that's, there, there are, I'm sure there are lots of other resources out there now in addition to Michelle Alexander's book, but that's certainly a great thing in terms of when, you're, when we're looking at something at like what happens with George Floyd or Maude Arbery or Breonna Taylor, and we're wondering, are these, are these things apparent to the way the system works because, or, or are they normalized you know, parts of how the system work? And I think that book is, is eye-opening there. I think that finding, look, there are nonprofits galore that do work based, you know, on, on racial justice, um, find out who they are, do it locally, look in Houston, ask people who you think might be into this kind of thing and see, are there ways, if you have the financial means to do so, if there are ways to support the work. Um, I, I work for a very small nonprofit in the Delta, and I can tell you that the difference that a donation makes, it truly does. Um, not only asking you to write a check, but that's one thing, um, Find ways, this is a, a taller order than it may sound, but I remember a, uh, a professor once who's now at Yale Divinity School, um, he said one, one of the most helpful things white people could do would be to actually build relationships of consequence and significance with people of color. Yes. Um, in other words, that you know, relationships, friendships that would, if something negative happens to that person, then it would actually impact your life, not just an acquaintance or someone you would pass in the street. Um, And not, you know, therefore to assume that, oh, well, I I work with somebody or I pass somebody, you know, in the grocery store or at my child's daycare or something like that, but actually really building significant relationships with people of color. Um, Go 
you know, find ways, respectful ways to actually go and be present in communities and in places um, that are different than our own, um, sort of an immersion type of thing. That's another possibility. Um, I would, you know, start there. It kind of depends on where the person is. Um, the internet gives us a ton of information that we would not have had otherwise. That's a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> you can find the emotional echo chambers that we live in. We can find anything <laughs> we want that can affirm our, you know, our preconceived notions of how the world works. Um, and so I think even being aware of, of that um, and I don't know, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm rambling a bit, but uh, that's a good question. And there's, um, I think the thing about that question that I find difficult to answer is that it presumes that there's maybe a silver bullet that would do it. Like if I just did this one thing or these couple of things and that might, you know, fix things. And the way racism works in our, in our country is that it's so much more complicated than that. And that's not to evade an answer because I think some of the things I mentioned are things that can be done. Um, but to also know that um, just doing one or two things still might, it's still going to be a process and it's still going to be, mm. it'll still take some work. That's not necessarily easy. I think another suggestion I would say is be, be willing to be uncomfortable and just sit with that, you know, okay. Like, and, and even say, even if you disagree with something that you hear or that you're reading or that you're learning or that you're hearing from someone to say that just because I disagree with what a certain activist or a certain scholar might be saying, there's a, you know, differentiate between somebody's statement that you may not like and the actually bigger social realities that we're living in. I don't agree with everything I hear every activist say, you know, nor does every activist agree with everything any other activist says. There's always a plethora of opinions and there's always going to be debate in terms of what are the best ways forward and how to do things within any community. Um, and that includes communities who are fighting for racial justice. It's not a monolith and not everyone agrees, you know, on the same set of terms and what's, what's most helpful. So I think giving oneself a little bit of grace to say, okay, I heard this. I don't necessarily know that I agree, but there are probably a bunch of other folk out there who are proposing things that can be done that might feel um, more attainable or things that I, I can do in the, in the process or in the meantime. I think one of the beauties of the era that we live in is that there's a multiplicity of ways of learning. You know, I think about just the documentaries that are out right now, whether it's 13th or the house I live in, or, you know, um, there's so many ways of learning um, particular histories of, of the way and where we've gotten to. And, and I realize that part of my journey has been uh, the necessity of both um, learning some history that was uh, not available to me as a kid growing up. Uh, and to really understand a different um, um, that light being sh shown on a different part of the populace and their uh, their whole experience uh, was deeply important. And then also, I found my theological training was uh, was woefully inadequate when it came to um, understanding the world um, um, in a larger um, portion than just kind of um, America or European understandings of theology and who God is. And so that that some 
some of that was kind of shaped by uh, a walk down um, some Latin American theologians, you know, that was kind of particularly important for um, uh, for my own family and the way that my own family is configured. But then that led me to some um, some other theologians of color that was like, oh, you know, when when Cone began to critique some of the stalwarts of my own kind of upbringing, you know, whether that was Tillich or whether that was Niebuhr or Bart, I was like, oh, they critiqued all these things, but never did the work in uh, the in their own context about race, you know, and that that helped me to understand kind of the waters that I swam in and swim in, um, and uh, helped me to be more curious about my own upbringing and about um, things that were already around me. So I. I, uh, I found that to be helpful as well. Yeah, those the history, I, I, I acknowledge and claim up front that I am bookish and a scholar and I love to read. And yeah. I, don't, I, 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 I sometimes hesitate to just say, oh, go read more books or go read more things, although that is my first inclination, you know, the first thing I would say. But I think you're right, too, bringing up just there, there are lots of documentaries that are that are out and available, movies that are out and available. There are things that are other than books that one can do. Um, I, there's a, there, I'm, I'm rolling back through books I read over the years, like American Apartheid, which talks about housing segregation, um, and the redlining and those, those practices, um, the new Jim Crow, of course, I've mentioned, um, there are, uh, of course, I'm going to blank on the name at the moment, but there's, uh, there are great books that have just come out about the history of, you know, racial ideas in the United States that yeah. are great reasons. Yeah. Stamped it from um, the beginning. Yes, yeah, yeah. from the beginning. Um, and that book is not the first book to do that. There are lots of, but there are other resources out there that, that cover those ideas as well that are, um, but that's an excellent resource. White Fragility, White Rage, those are two separate books that have been written recently as well. And if you don't know where to go, I would say to somebody, you know, ask your pastors, um, mm-hmm. look up, you know, look up a mainline seminary and shoot an email to a professor. I'm more, more likely than not, they would be happy to respond with a suggestion or two of some things to read or a lot of seminaries too are, are starting to get on board with um, offering more webinars and, and continuing education experiences for people around issues of race to um, nonprofits as well, like Project Curate and others. Like there are op- more and more opportunities are developing. So there are ways to plug in. Um, one thing that I found very helpful for me is I've been a part of a community organizing group, um, together, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. um, it's with the industrial areas foundation and I've done work with them for the last four years or so. And I've done work with other community organizing groups, faith-based church-based community organizing groups back in Virginia, where I lived for a while. Um, and part of the, the, usually in those processes, you identify a social issue that the groups want to work on to try to solve um, but they've always been very um, well done in terms of the racial and religious diversity that they bring together around the table for those processes. And what's been really beneficial is not just the issue that we work on to try to resolve in the community or at the state level, either one, um, but also the relationship building that happens out of sharing space. Um, and usually if they're good organizers, which we've had, um, they're really good about making sure there's an equitable sharing of power and responsibility in those groups as well. And so you really just, you get to work on something beneficial for a community. Uh, and at the same time, you're building relationships across lines that we may not have the chance to cross in our, in our everyday lives. Mm. And that's something that those, those organizations are largely lay driven and we need lay people. Yeah, absolutely. Parts of that. I love how he said, send an email to a mainline seminary. 
not like an IFB independent fundamentalist Baptist <laughs> school. I uh, I have my allergies to those. Okay, so making sure. Of... What we grew up in that world, I know them well. They might surprise you though. I don't know. IFB. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, as, as Matt said earlier, there was a, there's a, a Texas Pastors Council. It's it's mostly a Baptist organization, but they've sent a, sort of a plea to uh, the Texas legislature that was that you know there's language now being spoken that is is very different. I mean, I think now there is also in the Southern Baptist Convention, isn't there an African American president that was elected, which. Uh, when you, look at the, right. when you look at the SPC history, it's not that many years ago that they kind of recognized racism and apologized for the history. Yeah. Of course, that's probably true of most denominations, if I had to guess. But yeah. Well, tell me what you do. Yeah. What, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Besides read all those books. <laughs> So, well, I mean, I want to frame for you where I am a little bit. Lake Providence is, I live a mile off the Mississippi River. Nice. Um, I'm in the far northeastern corner of the state, I'm about, about 15 miles from the Arkansas state line. And where I live, we are, Lake Providence, we are about an hour and a half away from a Target. We're an hour and a half away from a Starbucks, um, a movie theater. Um, at least one that's, you know, multi there's a, anyway, yeah. Um, it's a town of about 3000 people with two restaurants in it. Um, on a 63% of our children live in poverty, 45, 50% of adults live in poverty. Um, there's no middle class that exists. Therefore there are no middle class amenities, um, in the area, not just in our town, but most Delta communities up and down the river. That's pretty normal. So I have to be creative in terms of what I do to maintain sanity and to, to get out and enjoy myself. But I love photography. Um, mm. Developed that over the years. Louisiana is beautiful. Louisiana has its struggles, but it's also a very beautiful state. The Delta is a beautiful region. It's very troubled. There's a lot of poverty and it's still very beautiful, both in terms of the people who live here, but also the natural beauty as well. Um, spent a lot of time out kayaking um, wildlife photography, getting out to the wildlife refuges. There are no national parks in Louisiana, which is interesting. Wow. But there are a lot of state and, and wildlife refuges and state parks as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of nice places to get out when it's not 105 degrees and full of mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> it's about four days out of the year. <laughs> two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall. Um but that, that, that keeps me busy. Um, yeah, I read a lot, do photography, um, stay pretty busy with work. So, you know, stay in that. Love to cook, those kinds of things. How did you got you, you to be creative and find ways to keep yourself going. How did you get there? So you, you go do your Ph.D. And, um, uh, and, and you end up in northeastern Louisiana in a real 3,000-person <laughs> town that's – you know, how, how, yeah, how did you, how did you get to where you're at? Well, I, I jokingly say, because I'm not trying to shame anybody, but I jokingly say I read Liberation Theology and I took it seriously. Um, <laughs> that was, those are the, that was the, the method that I work with in my, my program and had been reading for several years, which Liberation Theology is just the idea that Christians are called to be in places of, of, of oppression and poverty and we were meant to, to find ways to make a difference in those places and to challenge the, the reasons why those conditions persist. 
Um, that's one reason. That's the very noble reason why I was here. Um, the other reason is that a, a PhD in theology is good for um, for teaching in seminaries or divinity schools, or but the job market is absolutely horrible <laughs> for teaching in religious studies programs or seminaries or divinity schools. With the shrinking population of the church, there are shrinking budgets in seminaries and div schools. Uh, state education budgets, as they get slashed, the humanities are the, the jobs that go to adjunct status. So they're part-time, no benefits. You might make eight or $9,000 a year. Um, I taught, I've been teaching higher ed, college and seminary level courses for the last nine years, but it's very difficult to make a living from it. Yeah. Um, so I've taught in seminaries, I've taught at colleges, I'm teaching at a university now on the side as an adjunct. And, uh, you just can't make a living from it. So I also need, I had to have something to do and found this job description and it said race, economics, poverty, check, 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 deep South. Those were all the things that I've been, I've been stuck in a study carol for four or five years researching and writing about this. And there had always been a strong part of me. And I think for most people who are moved by liberation theology, there's a strong sense of wanting to be involved in the work, um, not just from behind a desk, or in terms of what I write. And that was a call. It worked out. The timing was there. Mm -hmm. um, and so off I went and came to Louisiana. And it's been a wonderful education, um, just as valuable, if not more, than the PhD that I earned from what I've learned being in this community. Um, I didn't, I will be the first to say, I didn't know that conditions like this still existed in the United States. And they do. And they're, they're very present here. So it's been valuable work and uh, challenging work and isolating work, but good work nevertheless. Mm -hmm. That's great. So tell us again your podcast uh, and the organization that you are with so people are aware of that. The podcast is Progressive Southern Theologians. Um, there's also a website where we publish lots of writing, sermons, essays, articles from uh, from colleagues and friends. What happened was out of that context, I just described two or three years ago, it became very lonely. And I felt like I had left this one world where I had an identity as a scholar and a researcher um, and came to a world where just drastically different and not as easy to fit in. And I found that I had a lot of other friends and colleagues who were in ministry and who were also um, more progressive in terms of their theologies and politics. And we're doing who are doing work in the South, but as you can imagine, doing that work in the South can be lonely and isolating in and of itself. And I had a lot of friends who were facing those challenges. And so we pulled together this website to kind of share our thoughts and just kind of say, hey, like there are um, there are progressive folk doing this work throughout the South. This is the South often gets a bad reputation, sometimes very well earned, <laughs> but sometimes um it can seem as if uh, it's, it's monolithically conservative evangelical or Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell country. And that, uh, that overlooks the realities of, of folk who are doing good work here. Um, so we try to lift up and elevate, and put a spotlight on folks who are doing that type of thing. Um, but you can, but we've started a podcast several months ago, so you can check that out too. Um, the organization I'm with is called together for hope, Louisiana. And so you can look up together for hope, Louisiana and find our website and Facebook and things like that. I've loved the uh, I've, I've loved the website. I kind of fell down that rabbit hole about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and just some great writing. Your photography is on there as well. Uh, I found the podcast, which I've really enjoyed. Just the um, the slow conversation that y'all are having. It's been uh, really helpful to me. So thank you for that. Really appreciate thank it. You. Yeah. Thank you. Mark, thanks for your time and for the good work that you're doing. And 
We'll have to get you over to Houston soon. Love to. That'd be great. Love to come and visit. We'd love that, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, I'm not too far away. So, uh, yeah, I would love to do that and appreciate y'all do, doing what you all do. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks you for all your, your guidance and your help as well. Yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks. All right, brother. You have a good Blessings. day. Yeah. We'll see you right. soon. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. So I, um, I don't know. I, I like Mark. I do too. Because I think, is, is what, whether it sounds good, bad, or indifferent, I think that, uh, I don't know a nice way to say it or a good way or whatever, but, you know, white folk need um, ways to be invited into to processing some of this that's going to be non-threatening for some people. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know I know how that sounds across different ears. And I'm just saying, you know, not everybody, what he said, not everybody is at every place in the spectrum. I mean, well, right. not every place is at one place. People are all along the spectrum of this mm-hmm. journey. And my goal is how can we get as many people across the broad spectrum to move in a direction to a greater sense of unity and um, and really God's intended purpose? Yeah. You know what Mark's helped me with is it because I'm I had the tendency once I see something to be all in, you know, and there's some really good things about that, and there's not there's some not so good things about that, and he's helping me understand that it is, um, it's it's um, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, right? So it's a long journey that we're on, and and that God's kindness and gentleness will get us all there. It's just it's just going to happen unless we we resist it and become just jerks but you know god's gonna work with us and liberate all of us well well, i think today uh is a nice way to uh, defer to our elders Uh, since you're older than i am i thought that you would um kind of do the the ending oh you're gonna let me lead out yeah you you do the ending and i'll just do your part i'm john stevens and this is pod have mercy no, that's not really oh, what no, I meant. No. Oh. You do your name. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but then I'll okay. do my name, and then you do the Pod Have Mercy. Well, I am Matt Russell. And I'm John Stevens. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Old man. This is Pod Have Mercy. Pod Have, have Mercy. This is Pod Have don't Mercy. Say, don't say Pod too hard. Your dentures <laughs> will fall out. <laughs>